Our next guest has what might be one of the most consequential federal jobs of all. No, not cabinet secretary or tax commissioner. He's the new director of the National Weather Service, and he came up through the ranks as a meteorologist and forecaster. Kenneth Graham joined Federal News Network's Tom Temin to discuss his path to this new role. When we last had you on a, gosh, almost four years ago, you had just become the director of the National Hurricane Center. Did you ever dream you'd be running the whole kahuna weather-wise? You know, it's interesting. It seems like along the way, I always saw myself in the position I was in and never really thought about the next one. And we were talking before we went on air. It's still soaking in, right? It's like, oh, yes, I'm director of the the National Weather Service. I think it's still soaking in for me. So what are your initial plans? And well, first of all, what's your initial feeling about looking at the agency? Is it in pretty good shape? Do you have some areas you'd like to focus on? Yeah, the place that I want to focus, talk to the workforce. We've done some all hands and it really is our people our infrastructure, and our future. It's simple. It's easy to remember. And the first part is people. It's everything. I mean, we've, we've been through so many events. You think about hurricanes running out of names two years in a row. You think about the wildfires, the amount of tornadoes and floods. I mean, all of that during a pandemic. So really it is. It's really taking care of the workforce. And Tom, my initial impressions, it's always been like this. I'm just humbled by this workforce. They're so dedicated you know, 24 hours a day, keeping an eye on the radar, keeping an eye on the weather, getting that information to decision makers. I'm just humbled by the dedication. So it's real simple. If I could take care of them in this position, they're going to take care of the mission. The infrastructure, that's the next part. We got to make sure we're solid. I mean, you look at how we get warnings out. People are counting on those. We got to make sure the infrastructures are really solid. So that's another one. And where are we going? You know, you look at the future and you look at the next pieces of equipment, the next generation warnings and the next generation meteorologist, hydrologist, engineer. That's a part of it too. So that's the three of them. And it really gets me pretty excited to think about them. And the computing facilities, there's always new algorithms. There's new weather challenge forecasts to be solved to get that accuracy another 12 hours out. I imagine that's a big concern also, keeping up with the latest in the algorithms and the computing power. Yeah, the computing power, we just debuted the new supercomputer. Super excited about that. It's really looking at the ability to not just look at the forecast, but extended in time. But the other part, this is a big one looking into the future, is really getting into probabilistic. I mean, if you think about one forecast is fine, but what if things move 20, 30 miles? It can happen. So we have to find ways to be able to do what we do in a probabilistic fashion, to put some science behind a common question. Tom, everybody always asks, what is the worst case scenario? Hey, Ken, what's really going to happen? So let's put some science behind that and really look at the probabilistic forecast. If it moves 20 miles, we want to make sure we account for that. And what at the National Hurricane Center, which is in some sense looking at the most extreme types of weather that the Weather Service itself looks at, because calm, sunny, breezy days are great, but hurricanes are what we really worry about. What prepared you from hurricane knowledge to this job, do you think? And it's interesting. Another uh, interview that I did asked the same question. And it was interesting, the answer, because I had to go back further. I went back to the meteorologist in charge at the New Orleans office. I think about the hurricanes, the floods, the winter weather, tornadoes, Deepwater Horizon. I think about how busy an office that was and how that prepared me for the NHC director. It was interesting getting to the hurricane center and saying, what prepared you for this? I said, well, I was in a busy forecast office in New Orleans and it helped me out. And if you think about the global perspective of the National Hurricane Center, 28 countries, that was new for me. I didn't have to just look at a smaller area. I had 28 countries we forecast for, international responsibility, busy as can be. And it's interesting how each one of those positions gets you ready for the next one. So here it's not just hurricanes, it's all hazards and across the country, but 
I think each one of those experiences give me a perspective to, to hit the ground running with this job. We're speaking with Kenneth Graham. He's the newly named director of the National Weather Service. And by the way, did Louis Uccellini leave an envelope in the desk for you or... It was wonderful. He sent me a message and it was a wonderful email about his experience. And we're we're already talking about when we can have coffee or breakfast together and just talk about the experience. I mean, it's just vast. And you put such a passionate workforce like we have in the Weather Service, just putting some focus to that, putting some vision to that. We really come together as an agency, as a family. You can't go through all those disasters without becoming family. And that's just a unique position. It's an exciting position to tie that together and go forward. And how much does the National Weather Service collaborate with the military branches that have their own oceanographic and meteorological facilities and forecasting facilities? They do a lot of replicative work, perhaps. And how does that all tie in together? Yeah, it's interesting. It's a great relationship. I mean, I think about the Navy, I think about NAVO, and thinking about their mission and taking some of our guidance and really them being able to narrow it down for their mission. I think of the Air Force. We know we work so close with them, especially in the previous job with the Hurricane Hunters, part of the Air Force. And doing those briefings. We do some decision support associated with the Navy. And at the Hurricane Center, we actually had a Navy employee there that did a lot of those briefings. So it's an incredible relationship with the different military branches. And one that I did want to highlight is there's a special relationship with the U.S. Coast Guard. And we do their decision support briefings. I look back at big events, hurricanes, floods, and how what a close relationship that we have with our U.S. Coast Guard partners and doing their decision support in the big events. So it's just an incredible relationship. We work well together and we tie our missions together. And it's less duplicative than people think, actually. We really complement each other in the heat of the battle. And I want to talk about another trend, speaking of the future. And this is something parallel has happened with the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And that is a rise in the number of sensors, the development of algorithms, and the observations that are done by the private sector simply not using the federal government as the only original source of weather, atmospheric, oceanographic data, and so forth. What do you expect there? And how could that affect the National Weather Service as we move into the future? Yeah, it's interesting to really back up and look at the importance of observations. And you go into any forecast office, you talk to any operational meteorologist and say, hey, what do you need? You go, yeah, if I could get you something, what do you need? Almost invariably, they'll come back and say, data, I want more data. I want information. And, you know, we see the value of that data, both in time and space, because, you know, back to hurricanes, it's interesting. The hurricane hunter data getting into the models made the track 10 to 15% better. Uh, The intensity 15 to 20% better. Data is everything. So I think there's opportunity there to get the data, to work together, collecting that data and getting that model data. Basically, uh, the accuracy of the models could depend on what goes in. What goes in um, helps what goes out. So I think there's opportunity there that yet to be explored. So I'm, I'm excited about exploring that. And you mentioned, too, that uh, you were the weather chief in New Orleans, and weather people are often on the job physically. How has telework and the pandemic affected the National Weather Service, and what's the situation now with respect to where people are doing their work? Yeah, it's interesting. There was a variability in that. I mean, you look at the forecast offices across the country, 122 of them, river forecast centers, for the most part, they were on duty the whole time they were coming to the office. They sat further apart, right? There were some precautions associated with where they sat and there were some workstations moved into hallways and some things like that that happened. The national centers were coming to work during the hurricanes. And if there were some opportunities to be able to work from home, we did. And I think the concern there was how busy the seasons have been. You got to keep people safe. 
you just have to find ways to keep people safe. You couldn't lose them in the heat of the battle. So I think now we're looking at return to work, a lot of folks coming back to work, and you still have some opportunities for telework. But I think one of the biggest changes is just the realization that we can use technology differently than we ever did before. We see collaboration calls on video. You did a conference call. We never did those on videos with emergency managers, both in the United States and international as well. You're seeing this whole new way to have meetings. We're collaborating better than we ever have. I think that's an interesting outcome associated from the pandemic that I look back on and kind of reflect. And when you attend a backyard barbecue or some sort of social gathering, do people generally leave you alone professionally or does everyone always pester you about weather and weather forecasting? Tom, I could barely ride the metro without somebody asking me something about a weather question. Look, it's awesome. You know, a lot of times I'm representing, so I love wearing NOAA shirts, weather service shirts. People call me a banner for the agency. Even when I travel and get on a plane and say, hey, weather service, you're NOAA and have a conversation. I just love this. I wanted to do this since I was six years old. So, I mean, any conversation I could have about the weather, I'll take anybody up on that. Kenneth Graham is the newly named director of the National Weather Service, the 17th in the agency's history. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, And uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there are so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that 
that what we say and do, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called Labor and Employee Relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. 
Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.